Last week, we learned that to think correctly about Jesus, you must think correctly about sin. Because if you don't understand sin, then you can't possibly understand why Jesus came, who He is, and what He accomplished on our behalf. But once you understand sin, though, then you turn your attention and answer the question, who is Jesus? And you know, uh, modern studies on the historical Jesus, which is, uh, I, I almost want to put that in quotations because they, they can be fascinating, but they can also be deceiving and disappointing because they're so far removed from uh, truth and, and time from, from the Jesus that is revealed in the Bible. There's a book called The Historical Jesus, Five Views, and it's a it is noted in that book that, that modernist options, here, here's some of the, here's the options that our world today have come up with to say who Jesus is. They say uh, he's one, any one of these things, an eschatological prophet, a Galilean holy man, an occultic magician, an innovative rabbi, uh, a trans-inducing psychotherapist, a Jewish sage, a political revolutionary, and a scene uh, a conspirator, an itinerant exorcist, an historicized myth, a proto-liberation theologian, a peasant artisan, a Torah-observant Pharisee, a cynic-like philosopher, a self-conscious eschatological agent, a socio-economic reformer, a paradoxical messianic claimant, and finally, as one who saw himself as, as in some sense, the very embodiment of Yahweh God. Out of all of those names, it's the last one that actually matches up with what Scripture says about Jesus. And so uh, it, it is th this one who is the very embodiment of Yahweh God is, is both our advocate and our atonement in, in His work of redemption. We're going to be learning about those two words and what they mean tonight. But, uh, you know, as we look at this, I mean, I ask myself, who could have ever imagined or made up anything like this, this gospel that we, that we love so much? This Jesus may or may not be a Jesus we can be comfortable with, but he is the Jesus we need. And he's the Jesus that the world needs. Um, so tonight we're going to begin looking at chapter 2 of 1 John. Uh, chapter 1 was very short, very just 10 verses. In this passage, what we're going to look at tonight, we're going to learn much about Jesus. We're going to learn a lot about His work in our lives, what He's done for us. And, uh, and, and John lays out at least five straightforward basic principles in the first 11 verses. Uh, four of them in verses 1 through 6 and the foundational command in, in verses 7 through 11. I thought I was hoping we'd get through 11, but I can tell you now, after studying the day, we're going to get through 6 and then we're going to cut it off there and pick it up again next week. But I want to begin reading in verse 1, and, uh, and we'll, we'll just go from there. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does, anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John begins this, ver this chapter uh, or this part of the letter, remember chapters and verses were added later. John didn't say chapter two. Now here's what I want to say. Uh, but, but he begins, this is the first time in this letter that, that John addresses his readers as my dear children. Or some translations might say uh, my, my little children. Some might even say beloved. But, but uh, the, my dear children and my little children is actually the most uh, cl close, closely, uh, it's the most correct translation because the, the Greek term there is technion which is a diminutive diminutive form of the word for child you say what in the world is a diminutive form well you understand the concept whether you know the word or not because in English the diminutive form of bird is birdie the the diminutive form of dog would be like doggy so it's a it's a, it's a term that means the same thing, but it has a little different feel to it. Does that make sense? It has a little more, uh, a, a little more intimacy to it. Um, or, uh, and so John, clearly what he's doing here, he's trying to com communicate close, loving affection, the same kind of love that a grandfather would, be, would have in dressing his grandchildren, in dressing small children. So 
That, that's an important phrase there because it tells us that John sees himself as their spiritual father and they see him as his, uh, as his, as their, and uh, he sees them as their, as his spiritual children. Now that's, that really does matter because of the fact that John is writing this to correct something that's going on. And I've said this before, and we're going to not going to spend a lot of time on it tonight, but uh, effective correction and discipline always, always, always comes out of relationship. Discipline and correction does not go well with people with whom you have no relationship. If you walk up to some guy on the street who's doing something that's obviously sinful and begin to say, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you here because what you're doing is wrong and sinful. Now, odds are he's not going to listen to you because he doesn't know you. However, if you have a, a, a dear, dear friend, someone you have walked through life with for years and you see them getting caught up in something, when you go to them and begin to speak to them and say, hey, can I talk to you about this? There's a much greater chance of there being an openness to you because of the relationship you have. And so it's the same thing with parents. You know, a parent uh, who is distant from their child, you know, like say it's a dad that just doesn't want anything, never interacts with his children. And and all he does is come home and plop down in the chair and then makes the kids be quiet. And if they make any no any peep, he's just yelling at them instantly. Well, honestly, any discipline he tries to bring is not going to really bring the desired result in the child. What it's going to bring is rebellion in the child because it's not uh, correction and discipline that's being done out of that relationship, out of, out of love. And so John, as he addresses these believers, he's reminding them by using these words, he's reminding them that they know he loves them. They have a history together. They have witnessed his love and his concern for them. He is the one who's led them to the Lord. He has walked them down this road of discipleship and growth for years at this point in time. And they know he loves them. Therefore, they know that, that in their hearts, they know that he only wants what's best for him. They know that he is looking out for their good. And so when, when John reminds them of his love for them, He's setting it up so that they will be better able to receive the truth and the correction that may be coming their way. All right. Now, to his dear children, John provides his first purpose statement. So we're on, you know, 11 chapters in, 11 chapters, 11 verses into this to this letter. And he provides us with his first purpose statement. He says why he wrote this. He says, I write this so that you will not sin. Now, while forgiveness and purification are available upon confession of sin, we talked about that last week, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that. And while that is true and that's available, it is far better for believers to avoid sinning in the first place. This is what John is talking about. This, and this is really... The first of these basic principles, these sort of rules for family, spiritual family life that John gives us in these, in these verses. And here it is. This is what it, what I, to sum it up in, in our everyday common language. This is, this is what he says. Don't ever mess with stuff that gets you into trouble. Don't ever mess with stuff that gets you in trouble. That's the gist of John's words. Now remember, John, has just mentioned in the previous chapter that God will be faithful to forgive us our sins if we confess our sins to Him. We, we, we know that. We, we quote it oftentimes probably in our own lives in 1 John 1, 9. But, but the natural reaction for, for some people, not everybody, not everybody thinks this way, but for some people, the natural reaction when they hear this promise is to say, hey, wait a minute now. If He is faithful and just, to, to forgive my sin every time I sin, and He is faithful and just, just to forgive my sin, if I just confess it, then hey, let's sin it up. Because we can count on His forgiveness. Let's just sin away because we know He is faithful and just. Well, John, in saying, I write these things so that you will not sin, he's really making the same point here that Paul made in Romans uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, because 
in response to those who heard this message of God's grace, where Paul said, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And they hear that, and then people are like, whoa, hey, this is great news, because if grace abounds where sin abounds, let's just sin all we can so that grace will abound all the more. We'll be doing God a favor by sinning because it allows him to use his grace more and, and to do great things and to show his grace. But in response to that, Paul said something that sums up similarly, similar to what John is saying, but he said in Romans 6, 1 and 2, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? So while it is true that, that, that believers will sin, because we, we know that the first, we talked about that last week. He's not talking about sinless perfection because, he's, because obviously he said, if we, if we do sin, we need to confess that sin. So it's true that believers will sin from time to time. John makes that perfectly clear in, verse, in chapter 10, verse Chapter 1, verse 10, and the following verses. But the reality of ever-present sin in our lives and of God's, the reality of God's ever-ready forgiveness must never become an excuse to sin. Like, to, you know, to sin like there's no tomorrow. And so what John does, John just pulls that weed up out of the garden of misunderstanding, that weed of misunderstanding before it gets a chance to sprout. He's He's, he's not giving us an excuse to sin, but he's urging us to avoid it altogether. Why is that? Well, it's because it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. You know, I read a story uh, from Charles Swindoll, who, who's master storyteller, really. But um, he, he tells a story that really helps us understand what John is doing here. Uh, back in, he, he writes this, and I'll just read it to you. Back in 1976, during the United States Bicentennial Celebration, Cynthia, that's his wife, Cynthia and I joined some friends for a bus tour from Jamestown to Boston. By the time we got to New York City, we were all bussed out and wanted to stretch our legs. About a half a dozen of us decided to take a self-guided walking tour around Mount Manhattan. Now, back in 76, there were still parts of Manhattan where you didn't even want to stop at red lights. But what did we know? That day, we were just naive West Coast tourists biting off more of the Big Apple than we could chew. After wandering a few blocks in this or that direction and taking in some historic sites, we ran into one of New York's finest. A polite but firm police officer held out his hand and said, hold it. You guys ain't from New York, are you? Um, no officer, California. The policeman nodded and said sternly, you don't want to go any further. There's danger behind me. Don't go there. Now that officer was not trying to take away our, our fun. He, he was not trying to keep us from the best tourist attractions and he was not trying to flaunt the authority of his NYPD badge. He writes, he was concerned for our safety. His warnings were for our good. He knew best. Danger lurked behind him. Now, the same is true of, of John's warnings here to these readers. He, he stands at the threshold of sin and holds out his hand and he says to his spiritual children, don't go there. There's, there's danger behind me. And we would do well to, to heed his warning in our lives today. John make, makes it clear. That in this life, we cannot be sinless. How many of you have come to that realization? Anybody here realize? You're, you, yeah, in this life, we cannot be sinless. But here's the thing. We cannot be sinless, but we can sin less. In, in, in a great play on words there. We cannot be sinless, but we can sin less. Why? Because we are now in intimate fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying here. He's saying, don't sin. You can sin less than you, than you ever have before. And as you grow in Christ, you can sin less and less and less and less. But even though you're never going to be sinless, you can still find forgiveness in that. We, the, the reality is we will sin until we uh, uh, receive our glorified bodies. We're, we're, that's, that's the truth. 
But what do we do when we sin? Well, in 1.9, he says that we're to confess our sins. But now, as we just read in chapter 2, verse 1, he, he tells us to flee to our Savior. And that is the one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I'm not going to get into this, but the reason he can speak to the Father, the reason he's effective as an as an advocate, the reason he's his his uh, atoning sacrifice was acceptable was because he is righteous. That's 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 why he adds that on there. But but this leads us really to that second basic principle that John gives us in this chapter. It's simply this. I love this. When you foul things up, remember you have someone who's always in your corner. That's what he's saying to us here. No matter what happens, we're never alone. No matter how far we stray into the murky waters of temptation and disobedience, we have one who speaks to the Father on our behalf. Another way of saying that, and this is how it's translated in some some versions, we have an advocate with the Father. That, That word advocate is the word parakletos. Now, you may have heard that because... Uh, especially in a Pentecostal church, because that's the same Greek word used to, uh, of the Holy Spirit in, in uh, John chapter 14, verse 16, where Jesus said, and I, I will ask the Father, Jesus said, speaking here, and he will give you another counselor. There it's translated counselor. Some places it's translated helper. Some places, uh, some uh, versions it's translated as advocate. But he said, I will give you another counselor to be with you forever. So parakletos is the word that's used there, and it refers to one who appears on another's behalf. Very similar to the whole idea, this is, when we think about a lawyer or an attorney, this is the idea behind it. When you stand before a judge and you have an attorney, the attorney stands on your behalf and speaks on your behalf. And this is what he's talking about here. The it refers to one who appears in another's behalf as a mediator, as an intercessor, or as a helper. And this helper helps us when we sin. He's the cleanser of sin, the forgiver of sin, and the helper when we do sin. And what's beautiful about this, because we've often heard of the Holy Spirit being listed as an advocate or a counselor or a helper. Uh, but, But what this tells us is that we have a helper in our heart, the Holy Spirit, but we also have a helper in heaven because Jesus is our advocate as well. Now, Warren Wearsby puts it well. He said, Christ is our representative. He defends us at the Father's throne. Satan may stand there as the accuser of the brethren. He gets that from Zechariah 3 in Revelation 12.10. He said, but Christ stands there as our advocate. He pleads on our behalf. Continuing forgiveness in response to his prayers is God's answer to our, our sinfulness. Like a defense attorney. Christ constantly pleads our case before the heavenly court. However, we need to understand there are a couple of key differences that distinguish uh, our divine advocate Jesus from an earthly attorney. Because when we begin thinking of it in terms of courtroom and attorneys, that sort of thing, it's a beautiful picture, but it breaks down if we don't understand some of the nuances that are here. Because an attorney here on earth uh, tries, to, tries to defend a client's innocence. But you know what? When Jesus Christ speaks to the Father in people's defense, He does not falsely claim that they are innocent. He does not do that. Our, the truth is, our Savior comes to our aid as we acknowledge our guilt. So this is very different than the idea of, a, of an earthly attorney. Another thing is an attorney works within the law, arguing the merits of our case, trying to persuade a judge or a jury. But in this case, Jesus is not there trying to change the the mind of the father who is the judge in this scenario. He's not saying, oh, don't do this, father. Uh, um, Just be nice to him for, for my sake. That's not what he's doing here because the father wants to forgive. We talked about that last week. He wants to forgive us. But our Savior... He came to our aid by becoming, and we're going to use a word here that you're, I'm going to use it several times, and you've, many of you have heard it. We're going to talk about it, what it means. But our Savior came to our aid by becoming the propitiation for our sins. 
1 John 2, 2 uses that word. Now, in the NIV that I was reading from, it just, it says, let me, let me get back to what it, so I can read it to you exactly how it says it. But it says, He is the atoning sacrifice. The atoning sacrifice, that's how they translate the word, the Greek word that's used there. But many translations use propitiation, and it's a very good word. The reason they, they translate it as atoning sacrifice is because in today's culture, nobody knows what propitiation means. And so atoning sacrifice is just a pretty simple way to say it, but, but there's a lot more nuance to it. But the, the bottom line is, is that he paid the penalty for the sins of humanity. As, as the one perfect God-man, he took the place of all humanity through his atoning sacrifice on the cross. Now, when you think about atonement, one way you can do that, I've, I heard this before, and this is not perfect, but it's a great way to get you the general concept. If you took look at the word atonement and you split it up into three words, A-T is at, O-N-E, one, M-E-N-T. Atonement is at one mint. It's something that brings together parties that were divided. Um, G- John was no doubt aware that for the Christian who wants to make progress in the spiritual life, there is nothing more demoralizing, uh, 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 nothing is demoralizing as sin. You know, I mean, you ever been in that place where you've been doing so well and then all of a sudden you, 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 you do something and you've been, and you're like, why did I give into that temptation again? How can God forgive me for that again? Well, you know what? Here's what happens. Our enemy, Satan, He adeptly uses our failures to accuse us and to fill us with guilt and to cause us to wallow in despair, which is why it's so important for us to remember Romans 8, 1, where Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to remember that because the enemy will try to heap condemnation on us. See, there's a difference between conviction of sin and condemnation for sin. Conviction of sin is when the Holy Spirit is, is, uh, is pleading with you with, with you with that still small voice. Sometimes, at least in my life, sometimes it's a little louder than a still small voice. Sometimes he's, he's shouting in my ear because he's trying to keep me from something. But it's not, uh, it's not a voice that says, you are, you are, you are lost. You're hopeless. You're helpless. And, and I, I can't stand you when you do this. It's a voice that says, don't go this way. It's like that voice that says, of the, of the New York officer that says, don't go that, go, don't go there. There's danger there. It's a voice that keeps you from it, but it never condemns you. But the a voice of condemnation is one that says, there's no hope for you. You are hopeless. You're hapless and you are just a rotten nothing. So you need learn to, to see the difference there. But the enemy wants to come in and, and try to bring that condemnation and try to make you walk and live in guilt when there can be freedom from that guilt and freedom from the shame through Christ. But the, the answer for such miserable, miserable moments is to rely on Jesus Christ who appears before God as our advocate to know that when you pray that, 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 Christ is by your side, that he's on your side, that he is, he is uh, pleading your case before the Father. And in that process, then we can receive some comfort. Now, here's, here's the thing about Jesus' advocacy, because we talk about him being an advocate for us. But Jesus' righteous advocacy is absolutely grounded in his act of propitiation. Now, the word propitiation is a very, very important word in the New Testament. In the Greek, the Greek word for it is halasmos. And the the word and and its variants uh, occur in the context of the work of Christ in four different crucial texts in the the New Testament. First is Romans 3.25. I think you'll figure out where this word is used when you hear it. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. There it is sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Hebrews 2.17. I think you'll hear it. You'll see it here very clearly. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, 
in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might what? Make atonement for the sins of the people. That's in order that he might be a propitiation. That's what he says there. 1 John 2, 2, we just read this. He is the atoning sacrifice, or he is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then later, John actually uses it a second time in the same letter, chapter 4, verse 10. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation for our sins. Now, as I said, there's some nuances to this word propitiation that we need to understand uh, what is talking about here, but the word carries with it the idea of satisfaction. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus Christ, by his bloody sacrifice on the cross, he satisf satisfied God's holiness and he turned away his righteous wrath from sinners. So the idea of a propitiation is a sacrifice uh, that, that satisfies one party and it, and, it, and it turns away the wrath of that party. That's the, idea, the fullness behind the idea. So the, in other words, the wrath that should have been poured out on sinners was poured out on Jesus. The judgment that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus uh, averted God's just wrath, and we're going to talk about His justness. Uh, he averted that wrath away from us, who were we were its deserved objects, deserved objects, and He took that wrath upon Himself. And all this was done to accomplish God's purpose. Second Corinthians five nineteen reveals that through His propitiation in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Therefore, when you hear about people like the feminist theologian named Dolores Williams, she's wrong when she says there is nothing divine in the blood of the cross. And Episcopal Bishop John Spong misses it when he says, neither do I want a God who would kill his own son. And Stephen Chalky is also an error when he says the orthodox understanding of the, of the cross is a form of cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense that he has not even committed. A twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. No, 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 no. The work of atonement accomplished by Christ at the cross and on the cross is, is where God's holiness and God's love meet. You see, it's on the cross. God, see, God's holiness cries out for, for punishment. God's holiness and his justness cannot just excuse sin, cannot just ignore sin. There is a price to be paid for sin, and his holiness demands that. But God's love also is so great that he says, I, my holiness must be satisfied, otherwise I'm not a holy God. And yet I'm a loving God, so there, there is a way in which I'm going to put together this plan where at the same moment, at the same time, I can fulfill my holiness, I can fulfill the justice of God that, 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 that the sin demands, and I can put on display my, the, the great love that I have for humanity. It's at the cross. It's at the cross where God's judgment and God's mercy kiss. Yes, yes, it's hard for us to understand how in Scripture it says that it pleased the Father to crush His Son and to put Him to grief, Isaiah 53.10. But also we got to remember that uh, two things. First of all, it's not cosmic child abuse because it wasn't as if Jesus uh, was being forced to go along with something He didn't want to do. He was a willing participant. He Himself is God. So it's not like one person is punishing somebody else. It was God resolving the issue within Himself. So yes, it pleased the Father to crush His Son and put Him to grief, but also it pleased the Father to highly exalt Him and to bestow on Him the name that is above every name. So, we see then that Jesus is not only our advocate, but he is also the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the propitiation for our sins. 
Now, now the thing, some reasons, the reason some people, scholars particularly, who struggle with this idea of propitiation uh, in the in the work of Christ is that is that the biblical presentation of propitiation differs very significantly from other ancient perceptions of propitiation and divine wrath. Because the idea of propitiation is not uh, merely, it's not unique to the Bible. There are many religions who have this, uh, uh, because there are oftentimes, you read even in Greek mythology, where a human has to do something to appease a god's wrath. Right? So, So you see this sort of thing. But while propitiation outside the Bible normally refuse, or excuse me, refers to the human appeasement of capricious gods, you know, that you don't know who, why they're going to get mad or when they're going to get mad, but when they get mad, we got to do something to appease them. But the New Testament is very different. The New Testament portrays God as the loving initiator of propitiation. So he is not only the one whose wrath will be appeased, he is the one who's paying the price to appease it. Very different than, than what, the, what the world had in its idea and its thoughts. This is God dealing with the problem of sin for us rather than us trying to placate a, an unreasonable God. God's wrath... You see, God's wrath is righteous. It is a righteous response to human sin. It is the right thing that, that all who sin should die. It's the right thing that the wages of sin is death. And, and this wrath that God has toward, toward sin is not the all too human, irrational rage that, that other gods were, were to, were susceptible to in, in mythology. But God's wrath is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and manifestations. And through the death of Jesus, God deals with his righteous anger toward sin, but he does it within himself since his son and the father are one. Though our sin be so awful that we deserve God's wrath, his mercy and love causes it to be removed from us by the gift of his son. Therefore, this idea of propitiation is not just an idea of of God's anger being appeased and his wrath being turned away because he initiates it. It's an expression of God's love toward us. Here's, Here's the beauty of the gospel. Since Jesus is this propitiation for our sins, think about what that means. That means his successful advocacy advocacy on our behalf is absolutely secured. I want you to put two and two together here. There's no doubt that John, John's point in referencing propitiation immediately after advocacy is, is, is included here. Jesus is an able advocate on our behalf because he himself has fully dealt with God's wrath on our behalf. So when he stands there and pleads on our behalf, it's not saying, oh, well, you know, but they're really a good person. It's him saying they're guilty as can be, but I paid the penalty. Therefore, since I paid the penalty, the, when, what happens is that Christ steps in for the believer who, who confesses their sin and the divine judge responds to our advocate who has paid the price for the sins of the world. And he says, in effect, I'm satisfied with the, with the uh, price that has been paid case dismissed and because of that there is no punishment of sin left to fear this is what he's done for us and in the phrase not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world john was reminding all believers that christ's atoning sacrifice is sufficient for the sins of every person in the world and the blood of jesus can cleanse any sinner any sinner regardless of how deep the sin stain may be what I'm saying by that is that no one is beyond forgiveness. If you think there's somebody that you, in your mind, in your life, or somebody you know that you say, man, they're so far gone, I don't see how they can, can ever be forgiven. Well, I don't know that they'll ever wake up, but I'm here to tell you that I don't care who they are, I don't care what they've done, Christ's atoning sacrifice is sufficient, and God will forgive their sin if they will turn in repentance and confess that sin to Him. While Christ's death is sufficient, 
for every sin of every person who ever lived, whoever will live, it becomes effectual only for those who confess their sin, accept the sacrifice, and embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. This is, this is all in the first two verses here. So powerful. So powerful here. That, let, let's go on to, to rule number three, or principle number three. I don't, I don't know how, how best to call it, but, but here, here's where he goes next. No matter what you say, your actions tell the real truth. No matter what you say, your actions tell the real truth. Read with me verses 3 and 4. We know that we have come to know, it, know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. The, the best proof we have that we have come to know Him and therefore are members of God's family is a life of obedience to Him. You know, you know, John is answering some important questions here. Namely, one, is it possible to know God and to live like the devil? Second question, is it possible to truly know God and have no life change? Well, Adrian Rogers answers those questions this way. He said, study the Bible to know about God. Obey the, body, the Bible to really know God. John says here that if we know Him, we obey His commands. So there is a correlation between knowledge of Jesus and keeping His commands. The two of them go together. Now, now if this, this could be easily misunderstood, uh, to, to, to somebody could twist it and say that John is meaning that someone can come to know Jesus by keeping His commands. That's not what he's saying at all. John does not endorse that. He makes that very clear all throughout the entire letter. He does not endorse commandment keeping as a mechanism to ensure salvation, but he's really saying that it is the necessary uh, duty. It's the necessary uh, function, the reaction to, uh, of, to those who are saved. John, John means that truly knowing Jesus leads to obedience. Not that being obedient leads to knowing Jesus, but knowing Jesus leads to obedience. And in this way, those two things go together. This obedience that John, John teaches, what it does is it reveals the genuineness of our faith. There is a massive, massive difference between merely saying and actually doing. Between merely saying and truly knowing. There, there's an old adage, I know you've heard it. Everybody here has heard this one. Actions speak what? Louder than words. Here's another one. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Any, anyone can say anything. Anyone can claim anything. John is saying that if we know Jesus, there will be fruit out of that relationship. So anyone who announces, I've come to know Jesus... But they, but they don't take a single step into the light or they don't lift a finger to do what he commands. That person is a hypocrite. John says that person is a liar. John is saying, if you want to know day by day that you know Jesus, that you're in him, that you're saved, it is simple. He says, look to his perfect advocacy, look to his atoning work on, your, on the cross on your behalf, and then keep his commands. Obedience is an important avenue of assurance. And, and even the desire for obedience is an important avenue for assurance. John, John is saying that someone with real love for God will naturally obey because of sacrificial commitment to Him, because I know Him in all of His beauty and glory and majesty. Therefore, I delight in obeying Him. See, it's not this idea of obeying where we are force ourselves and we got to make ourselves do the right thing and be disciplined. The, the, the reason that, that love for God will result in obedience is that it's love motivates. Love for God includes love of His holy character. Love for God means that we will want to please Him. Love for God means that we will be committed to His glory. You know, I mean, when you, when you're married to, when you're married, you, you, 
your love for your spouse makes you want to please them, right? And, and so you will do things that will be a motivation for you to do things to take care of them, to express your love for them. And it's the same way with God. L- love, love is a very, very powerful motivator. Now, discipline is helpful, but love is far more powerful than discipline. In the end, we are engaged in a competition of loves. Our love for sin versus our love for God. That's what it really comes down to. Love shapes our will. Love is the most powerful motivator there is. And if we truly love God, we will live His way. And to obey Christ for that person is not a burden. It's a blessing. It's my natural response to what He has done for me. Now, now before you misunderstand, this, this isn't referring to someone who blows it occasionally because we all do that. We've established that before. We, we, you know, we all snap at our spouses or shout at our kids or neglect our families at times. That doesn't mean that we don't love them, but it means that we are frail, fallen, finite humans. And the same is true of our relationship with Christ. The, the, the verb that he uses here translated does not keep in verse, in chapter, verse four is a, is a present participle which reflects a constant or habitual practice of disobedience. This is not talking about the person who loves the Lord but occasionally fails to keep His commands. This is a person who says they love the Lord, but their life is characterized by constant sin. It's a constantly sinful lifestyle. But the person who keeps His commands is the one who truly knows and loves Jesus. Now, with that said, I think there's an important question that we need to ask because this is where sometimes we get confused. This is where some people go off the rails and get very legalistic in a lot of different issues. Here's the question. What then are these commands of Jesus that indicate knowledge of Him? Well, the clearest definition John provides for these commands is found in chapter 3, verse 23 of 1 John. This is what it says. And this is His command to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. It really boils down to those things. And in, in, John, in, in 1 John 2, verses 9 and 10, John spells out the implications of keeping His commands. It means showing love to one's brothers and sisters in Christ. Consequently, what, we, what we're learning here, what we're learning is that a failure to love is evidence that one does not truly know Jesus. And knowing Jesus is evidenced by love. Now, love is, is clearly defined because you could, you could people say, oh, love, I love this. You know, we say, I love pizza. And then we say, I love my wife. And I hope you mean two different things by that. You know, I hope you're using the word love in two different completely way, different ways altogether. So, so we need to know what he's talking about when he says love. In 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, which is a great expression of God's love, but in 1 John 3.16, which is interesting to me that they're so closely related, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The, The love that is required is nothing less than the sacrificial, life-giving love demonstrated by Jesus Himself. Love is a rugged commitment to one another. It's little wonder then that John correlates love with truly knowing God. 1 John 4, 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now we're going to talk about love a lot more when we get to verses 7 through 11, which we're not going to get to tonight. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into that next week or uh, very soon. But but let's move on to, to number four, the number four, rule number four, principle number four. Here it is. When you're looking for an example to follow, choose Jesus. When you're looking for an example to follow, choose Jesus. First, verses five and six, first John two. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Interesting here, he doesn't say know him here. this time. He says in him. Whoever, verse 6, whoever claims to live in Him must walk 
as Jesus did. And what does it mean to walk as Jesus walked? Well, to walk as Jesus walked obviously does not mean choosing 12 disciples and performing great miracles and being crucified. You know, that, it's, that doesn't mean you just try to copy Christ's life and do every little thing that he did. M much of what Jesus did while he was on this earth had to do with his identity as God's son and with his special role and mission in, in dying for the sins of humanity. So you can't live like Jesus because, in that sense because you can't, you can't, first of all, you're not the, the only begotten son of, the son of God and you cannot die for the sins of the world. So it, it can't mean those things. Uh, but, but the truth is, another sure sign of a person who has spiritual family ties with the Lord is that he or she walks in the same manner as Jesus walked. And you remember we talked about that word walk, that it's a very strong uh, Hebrew idea that walk or walking is speaking about one's way of life. And so anyone's claim to live in Christ must be backed up by following Christ's example. What was his example? Complete obedience to God and loving service to people. It really boils down to the answer he gave to the man who said, what's the greatest commandment? Love God with, your, with everything in you, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love, love your neighbor as yourself. And if, if you're looking for a hero to follow, take your eyes off of the sports star, the powerful pol politician, the high rolling entrepreneur, or even, even take your eyes off of the mega, mega church preacher, maybe especially take your eyes off the mega church preacher and turn your focus to Jesus. Put your feet in his footprints, take your cues from his life, study his ways, learn from his example and emulate his actions. This means that as you go through life, maybe, maybe you're going to have a lot more patience with people who don't know Jesus, people who are walking in sin. Because it seems like Jesus had a lot of patience with them. Now, he didn't, he didn't lie to them. He didn't whitewash their sin. He didn't say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. He said to them, all right, your sins are forgiven now. Go and sin no more. Don't live like that. Don't do that anymore. But his love for them was palpable. This means getting to, if we're going to emulate his ways, it means getting to know him through a careful reading of and reflection on the Gospels. It means falling so in love with the Savior that you can't help but spend time with him and you spend so much time with him that you can't help but act like him. Have you ever seen two people that are around each other all the time and pretty soon they both, you know, they pick up different things from each other and pretty soon they're acting just like each other? This is what happens when we, when we, when we spend so much time with him, when we're in his presence, we're in his word, then we spend so much time with him that we, we begin to act like him. Gazing upon his face, he changes us from glory to glory to glory. And, and, you know, and in the middle of all of this, one of John's major themes throughout this letter is that a person's lifestyle absolutely and completely supersedes whatever that individual may claim. This is the idea that we talked about. Actions speak louder than words. In other words, your walk is more important than your talk. Now, that's not to say your talk is not important. Don't misunderstand me. Because there's some people who hear that and say, oh, well, I'm just going to live for Jesus and let my walk do the talking. No, no, no. He said, preach the gospel. He said, proclaim his truth. He said, go tell people about me. So there are words involved there. There's talk involved there. But what I am saying is, is that if your walk doesn't match what you're talking about, then what the reality is that your words are going to mean nothing and have no power they won't touch a single life ever. You know, Christians often would be far better off to stop talking big and just start living right. But, but make sure your walk matches your talk because if it doesn't, then all of your talk is wasted because they're watching your actions and they're saying he says he believes this, 
but I don't see it in the way he lives. Therefore, there, it must not be true. It didn't transform him because look at how he's living. And if your walk doesn't match your talk, then you are, by definition, a hypocrite. When you live according to God's word, however, what happens is your words will have power. And the way you live and your, and your consistent testimony with your words will make an impact on people around you. When you live this out and you love the way Jesus loved and you tell people about this one who is our great advocate and who is the, the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, when, when all of that comes together, then your life can make a difference. And Jesus can use you. And you, you first of all, know that you belong to Him. And second of all, you serve as a walking, talking invitation to everyone around you. Come to Jesus. Look what He's done in me. Amen. Let's, let's bow our head and let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. And I thank you, God, that, that there is power in your word to change us. But God, we don't want to be people who just claim to know you. We want to be people who walk this out, who live this out. And we want to be known as followers of Christ. We want to be known as people of love, people who, who are willing to speak the truth, but it's always done with love. We want to be known as people who who have been transformed by the, the grace and the power of God and by the, by, the, by the washing of the word and the power of your Holy Spirit. And, and God, we just, we want to be real. I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, to, to deal with this. Lord, if any of us are dealing with specific ongoing sins, God, I pray that you would help us to forsake those things, not out of just sheer discipline, but because we've, we've fallen in love with you. And God, and if our, if our love has grown cold, help us to be like the church in Ephesus, what you told in the book of Revelation, where you said, you said come back to your first love. You said, you said you're, you've forgotten your first love, and you told them to go back and do the things they did at the, at the beginning. And God, I pray that you'd take us back and help us, Lord God, to get back into your word and get back into our, our time with you and to fall in love with you all over again and let that love motivate us to walk in obedience, not as a burden, but as a blessing, because we love you so much that we just, we just want to be like you and we want to please you. Help us to be those people so that we can be a light shining in the darkness. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.